Alrighty, and here we are. Thank you so much for joining in. I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And in the previous video that we did on uh, discussing uh, in the volume of the book it is written of me, we took a look at studying the Word of God in and of itself as a topic. How to study the Word of God and how to look at all the details and, and to flesh out the teachings and the points we see, which is what we've been doing in our walkthrough of the Gospel of Hun. As we spend great time in the passages and discussing what's going on, uh, how it's being played out, and really trying to live the scriptures, living the word of God, painting the whole scenes and all these things. So why do we do this? Why is this so important? Well, we're told that we are to study the Word of God, to memorize and meditate upon these things, and to meditate upon the Word of God as, as it talks about. The picture that's behind this is like is chewing the food. Is, is you, you take a bite of food and you chew it and you get all of the nutrition, all of the flavor, all the, 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 the sustenance out of it. So that's what we want to do. We want to chew on the Word of God. We take a passage, take a verse, take a doctrine or teaching, and you go over it and over it and over it and over it until you get everything out of it that you possibly can. That that's how, how you feast on the living bread, feast on the Word of God. So that's what we're going to be doing with today's study in the Gospel of John. We're up to chapter 11. So please grab your Bibles, notepads and pens, grab your tea, grab your coffee, and we're going to be searching the scriptures we're going to be taking a look at john chapter 11 and seeing uh, what happens here and how we can apply it to ourselves to go live it speak it think it do it what can we learn out of john chapter 11. all right so again folks if you have any comments questions issues insights on this topic of john 11 as we go along please by all means feel free to uh, join in ask away if it's not relating the topic at hand, if you could just hold that to the end of the study or to the next broadcast. All right, so John chapter 11. And again, we're going to be going verse by verse, point by point. And just going to take a look at what it's saying, then how it's being said, and then how we can apply it to ourselves. So if you appreciate these, these studies, please make sure to give these a like and give them a thumbs up to show your support of this. Make sure you share them around and subscribe, hit notification bell icon so you know when we put up new videos and check out all our other playlists and platforms. We've got tons of information for you. All right, so without further ado, John chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary, which, appoint, which anointed the, the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Okay. Now, there's a few things to discuss in this. This is a certain man. Now, this is the same wording. You're also going to see when Jesus talked about the story about the, the rich man, and the beggar. So you said there, there was a certain rich man. There was a beggar named Lazarus. Now, this is a different Lazarus. This is not that same Lazarus. The, the, the Lazarus that was in the story of the rich man is a completely different individual. Now, but the point that I want to make is the particular words that Jesus uses here. 
there was a certain rich man. And he, and he died and he immediately opened his eyes in flame and torment. There was a man named Lazarus who begged at his gate. Who was covered in sores and the dogs licked his sores. And the time came when he finally died. And he was carried to Abraham's bosom. And he immediately opened his eyes in paradise. Now going by the specific words. There was a certain rich man. Was a man named Lazarus. Now, a certain man was sick. Now, this, the particular words here imply that this is an actual event. Like the rich man of Lazarus that happened there, where the rich man opened his eyes in hell, and Lazarus opened his eyes in paradise. That actually happened. That was not a parable. That was not a, a, a just a made-up story to help teach a doctrine or something. That uh, He was actually recalling an actual event. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So Mary, Martha have a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus felt really sick and they go and to get they go to call Jesus that Jesus would come and heal him. Now it says, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now this again is a love of, of friends and family of close acquaintances. And uh, we see here now there are some pathological crazy people who think that that uh, mary and or martha were married to jesus that's nonsense jesus never got married jesus never had children and uh, all that so again just scrub that out of your mind just wanted to mention that because you might come across some crazy people who might say that that never happened they, they're not married but he whom thou lovest to love as family as family and friends when Jesus heard that, verse 4, when Jesus heard that, that he was sick, he said, this sickness is not unto death. Okay. Wait a sec. But for the glory of God, the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, what do you mean by that? This sickness is not unto death because Lazarus dies. He dies. And he's buried in the tomb for four days. What do you mean it's not unto death? Is this a is this a contradiction? No. no. Because we take a look at something here. At the, the story, because what happens? Lazarus is resurrected. Spoiler alert. Lazarus is resurrected. That, that the Lord brings him back to life. Well, there's the application of spiritual death. But the point here is that he does not stay dead. This is not a sickness that will take his life and that he that he will then go you know to, to, into paradise go to be with the lord and that his body is dead he's actually dead dead that's not what happens here that this again like in john chapter 9 the man who was blind from his birth neither had this man sinned nor his parents that he was born blind but that the works of god might be made manifest through him is the reason he was born he was made blind born blind was specifically so that that the a, and this scenario could occur where jesus would come and heal him and to demonstrate his power upon him that the blind man was an instrument of god's glory look what jesus says this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of god that the son of god might be glorified thereby so jesus is literally telling them What's going on? 
what uh, telling them the plan he's giving them the spoiler alert he's giving them the spoiler this whole thing but they don't get it because sometimes the physical the actual emotional physical material uh scenario can be so overwhelming can be so gripping that sometimes we just can't get past it we just can't see past it it says now jesus loved martha and her sister and lazarus when he had heard therefore that he was sick he abode two days still in the same place where he was and he really he cared for them they're some of his best friends he truly cared for them and when he, but the thing is it says here but even though he truly cared for them truly loved them he still stayed where he was for two more days why so that lazarus would die now some would say well that's just cruel that's just wrong that's just mean and if he had the ability to tr truly heal him why didn't he just go immediately and go and do that because that's not what god had planned we pray and pray and pray lord heal lord help lord deliver lord provide and it doesn't come for days sometimes or weeks or months or maybe years it might be that maybe the lord is abiding two more days before he comes and does the things so that there will be a greater glory for him don't put a timetable upon god that when you pray don't put a timetable on him lord i want you to answer this now sorry uh god's not our bellboy i need you to come and to help and deliver this here right now real quick but maybe he wants you to wait a couple more days or weeks or months or something. Maybe he has a different different picture. Maybe he has a different plan. It's like the saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. All right. Jesus says this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Jesus abode two more days still in the same place where he was then after that he says to his disciples let us go into judea again let's go back to judea his disciples say to master the jews of late sought to stone thee and goest thou thither again so you see another thing with jesus as well is fearlessness fearlessness but they want to stone you but they hate you but but they curse you but 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 they oppose and oppress and they fight against. So, what's that to me? What's that to me? So, again, we see fearlessness. The Lord literally doesn't care. If there's a ministry that needs to be done, who cares about all the different other circumstances? Who cares about the trolls and the haters? We can't, we can't mold the ministry around the opposers. Or rather, we take the ministry of God and bulldoze our way right through any wall, right through every mountain, right through any force of the enemy that tries to stop us. I'm not moving. You're going to move one way or the other. I'm not moving. I'm staying on the path the Lord called me to do. And if you don't like it, tough. It's a gentle dogmatism. The freight train is coming. You better move. 
And his disciples said, Master, the Jews sought late to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because the, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. He's talking about how people are lost in darkness, and they need to see the light. Now, the Jews that wanted to stone him are lost. They're blind. They're in darkness. They need to see the truth. Like Saul opposing the church. But did the Lord but the Lord ignore him and hate him and fight against him? No, he called him again and again and again with the with the pricks of the testimonies, with the truth, with the prophecies, with the teachings of Christ, with all these things, and until finally he sees and understands the truth by the light of Christ, he gets saved and becomes the apostle Paul. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. I'll get to that in a second. But I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Now, I want to touch on something here. A lot of people are kind of deceived with a teaching. It's called soul sleep. Soul sleep. This is one of the passages they try to use on that uh, to try to justify and prove soul sleep doctrine. Soul sleep is not true. Soul sleep is a false doctrine. It's unbiblical nonsense. It's not true at all by any stretch of the imagination. Now, what we see rather, as the Bible teaches, is absent from the bodies be present with the Lord. The Bible teaches that when the body dies, the soul moves on. That the body without the spirit is dead. The spirit doesn't stay sleeping in the body. The body without the spirit is dead. That means the spirit has left the body. So if the spirit has left the body, where is it gone? Then there's other things. Like, for example, we see the spirit of the prophet Samuel is called up out of Sheol to speak to King Saul. We see the spirit of Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we see as well Jesus talking about the rich man and Lazarus, a different Lazarus again. Um, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, they immediately open their eyes in the afterlife. Where the rich man immediately opened his eyes in flame and torment, and Lazarus immediately opened his eyes in paradise. They weren't sleeping. And then we see Paul as well, the Apostle Paul, it says uh, in his persecution, he says, And I was in deaths often. And in one of the occasions, he talks about how uh, about this. Uh, this was after, I believe it was Laodicea, where he was stoned and they killed him. He says, I met a man in heaven above, whether in the body or the body, I cannot tell. So obviously there is no way you can justify soul sleep by the word of God. Now, it's not the soul that sleeps. It's the body that sleeps. Because as Jesus goes on to talk about, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here in verse 26. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? You will never die. What do you mean? I mean, I'll never actually die. No, no, he's talking, he's talking here about eternal death. Eternal death. All those outside of the Lord, they will, they will inherit the second death. The judgment that come upon them. Because the one thing that you'll note throughout the word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, you will never, ever, 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 ever find where an unsaved individual was resurrected. 
An unbeliever was resurrected. You'll never find that. Only believers are resurrected. Only those who believe in the Lord and believe in the truth of Christ are resurrected. Why? Because they're not truly dead. Because with the saints even, even say Charles Spurgeon who died many years ago, or Moses who died many years ago, or any of the other great preachers of time past that have died, servants of the Lord that have died of time past, their bodies will be resurrected. They don't. Their bodies don't stay dead. But in fact, what you'll see is the unsaved, their bodies are not resurrected. Our bodies are resurrected to be changed and reunited to, to have that new resurrection body. But the unsaved are not physically resurrected. But there's a resurrection of their souls in hell. It says hell is brought up and then they are judged out of the books. And whoever's name is not found written is cast in the lake of fire. You do not see physical resurrection of the unsaved, only physical resurrection of the saved, because the saved never truly die. It's a time where the where the body waits for the resurrection of the Lord, that we are re reunited again and changed. We never actually die. We Our bodies sleep and await that day, and while our bodies are sleeping, our soul is with the Lord. We never actually die. And no two Christians will ever say goodbye for the last time. So, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus sleepeth. So, what does he mean by that? It's because he's going to be brought back to life. He's not actually dead dead. Yes, he died from the illness, but it's not a permanent death. So the term there, because it's not a permanent death, it's not a true death. True death is permanent death, where you stay dead and you're not brought back. So Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I might wake him out of sleep. So that's just another way of saying, that's like a metaphor of saying, I'm going to go resurrect him. Then says his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, because they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep, like regular sleeping. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's passed away, died from his illness. Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Wasn't that a little callous, Jesus? No. And then you take a look at what he means by this, by skipping ahead and looking at what happens, what occurs. A great, powerful thing is going to happen. And I, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Again, Jesus telling them again what exactly is going to happen. But because of the physical circumstances, they just can't grasp it. Now, funerals are, are it, it's a terrible thing. When someone, when someone passes away, whether saved or unsaved, it, it's a truly painful thing. To lose a family member, to lose a friend, to, to lose people from our lives, it's a painful thing especially if they're unsaved, but it's, it still hurts greatly, even though they're saved. And you know you're going to meet them again. You know you'll see them again. 
And there's many different kinds of things that we could say or impress upon the, the, the people who have had the loss, you know, to comfort them. But still, there's the, the sting. There's the, there's the hurt. And especially when it's something like that, it can affect the mind into such a way that it, it can bring us into a depression. It can, it can mess with our minds sometimes in fear. Sometimes there can be anger. Sometimes there can be all kinds of different things and heavinesses where even the word of God is kind of blocked out by our own depression, by our own upset. Which we see in verse 16, that said Thomas, which is called Didymus unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, the meaning there is to go and be a part of the funeral process, to go and grieve with the family, and to sorrow over the death of the one. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. So... Lazarus has passed away. They've wrapped him up and, and all of the rich rituals of the process where they would cover the body in spices and herbs and things to cover the smell of death and they'd wrap the body up. Now, the body, the way they had wrapped them up is similar to like how you would see a mummy kind of thing where they were long strips and they start at the feet and they wrap it up with the legs together, wrap it all up. Then they cross the arms and they wrap the body all up with all the spices and things right up to here. Then they use a separate piece, a napkin thing to wrap the head in a separate piece and they carry the body and lay it in the tomb. Now he's been in the tomb for four days. So four days of decomposition. Keep that in mind. When Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now, Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs up. Now, in Jerusalem. Now, the Middle East is not really a place where the weather is that friendly. It's not like, you know, Iceland or Canada or Russia. Uh, the Middle East is rather arid, is rather hot. It's a rather hot place. Now, bodies that are put in a stone tomb in the Middle East, in that heat, are going to decompose rather swiftly. Keep that in mind. I know it's a little unpleasant to think about, but that's important. But those are important points. Now, Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs up. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were well known. They had lots of family, lots of friends, there were lots of acquaintances, and let alone Jesus and his disciples knew them well, and they were all good friends of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Mary didn't want to talk with him right now. Martha went. Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. 
Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. So we see the pain coming right out. The, 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 the whole, the elephant in the room. Why weren't you here? God, why didn't you help me? Why are you helping me? Why are you answering? Sometimes the frustration comes out and we can kind of blame God and and we kind of put it on him like, like somehow he made a mistake. If you had have been, if you had have been here, my brother had not died. Now, granted, granted, we are kind of speculating on the tone. That's a little bit, a little bit of our license here and being able to paint the picture. Did, did she yell? It doesn't say she yelled it. It doesn't say she was angry. But but we can tell that, especially in a moment of uh, of pain, of death of family, that there will be great hurt, grief in there. Martha says, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But then we see something. Then we see something, verse 22. But I know, Martha says, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou will ask of God, God will give it thee. So we see a pouring out of the pain, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you, pouring out all the pain, and then pleading for help. But I know that even now, even in the midst of all of this, no matter what it is, that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. So we see, according to thy faith, be it unto thee. The Lord is blessing her faith. The Lord is blessing her faith. Because the first thing he says is a is an, an answer to her request. Granting her her request immediately. Martha saith unto him, Now I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So you see, she believes in you know, the great resurrection, the gathering of the saints. And Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection. Just simply that statement right there. Why look forward to the resurrection when the resurrection is standing right in front of you? Why look forward to help when the help is standing right with you even now? Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be open unto you. The Lord grants it here. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you see that? That's what I was talking about earlier. Though he be dead, yet shall he live. No true death. So in that, again, just to look at this a little bit. We will never really die. Your consciousness, your awareness will go on forever. It will never actually stop. That all that death is, is the wearing out of a suit. When the glove wears out, when the glove wears out, does the hand disappear or does the hand keep going? The body without the spirit is dead. So the only reason your 
body, the flesh suit, is moving is because your spirit is in it. The only reason your heart is beating, your brain is firing, is because your spirit is in it. Your body, the flesh, is not the you. You are your spirit. As it talks about in Scripture that the, that, that the, the life is in the light of the eyes, that it's your spirit that's looking out your eyes right now. That when this suit wears out, you'll keep on going. Either in heaven or hell. But for us, there'll never be a true death. We will live forever. We are eternal, immortal beings. We are immortal beings. That we are going to be alive for the rest of eternity. That a billion trillion years from now, we're still going to be milling around. We're still going to be alive. We're still going to be fellowshipping and talking and talking about the Lord and worshiping the Lord and enjoying the peace of our Lord. A zillion years from now, we're still going to be milling around because time is irrelevant to us. Time is irrelevant. Don't look at time. Jesus says, all those who believe in me shall never die. Think about that. Stick that in your theological pipe and smoke it for a minute. Look at what all of that means. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Think about that. No saint actually dies. They just move on to the next position of our service of God. It's like a missionary on the mission field it finishes up their work and goes home. They're not gone. They've just moved to a different location. It's like, it's like say you plan, you're planning a, a, an incredible vacation. Some of your family go on ahead of you. They're not gone. You're going to be joining them shortly. We're going to be joining the rest of the family. We're not dying. We're moving so don't think of it as death don't think of it as death we're not dying jesus says and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die believest thou this look at what martha says in verse 27 she saith unto him yea lord i believe that thou art the christ the son of god which should come into the world. What did she just do? She just believed upon the Lord. She just confessed with her mouth the belief of her heart. Now, throughout the Gospels, especially at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is calling his disciples, and they come to Jesus, they see who he is, they confess who he is, what do they immediately do? Every single time a person confesses the Lord, what do they do immediately? And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly saying, the master has come and called for thee. She immediately goes and calls others to Christ. In my opinion, I believe Martha got saved in verse 27. That's my opinion. I'll clarify that as my opinion. Just based upon what happens in verse 27, 28, as Jesus is telling her the truth. That's just my opinion on that. If you disagree, okay. But I personally feel 
in verse 27 that Martha got saved in verse 27. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly saying, The master is come and calleth for thee. Verse 29. And as soon as she, Mary, heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet coming to the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. There's a picture there. Now, where, where Jesus and his disciples are coming to meet them, Martha comes running out, meets them there. Jesus speaks with Martha. Martha confesses Christ and then runs to get married. Jesus stays right there. He doesn't move. He waits in the same place that Martha met him. The same place of the same teaching of the same doctrine. We all meet the Lord at the exact same place. The same place where Philip met him. The same place where Nathaniel met him. The same place where Peter and James and John and Matthew and Mark met him. The same place that Mary Martha met him. The same place that Paul met him. The same place that I met him is the same place where you met him. It's the same place, same cross, same blood, same resurrection, the same faith, the same spirit, the same place we all meet the lord at the same place we come from many different directions but we all come to the same place i am the way the truth the life the door the water the bread i am the redeemer he is the savior he's the only way the truth and the life no man comes unto the father but through him we all come to to the same door the same place you see that so mary rose up to meet him in the same place that Martha met him. That's why I feel, I believe, that Martha got saved in verse 27 because of what that implies. So as soon as she heard that, verse 29, Mary arose quickly and came unto him. Verse 30. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. So now a crowd is coming to Jesus. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was, she saw him, fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died, saying the same thing. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. There's a lot of imagery here as well. But a powerful scene that we can see from this is Martha. Martha comes and meets the Lord and goes and, and tells Mary, and Mary comes to meet. So you see, by the testimony of one, how many people can be brought unto the Lord? By the testimony of one. One single witness can move a mountain of people. One testimony, one confession of faith can convict and draw many hearers. That they that sometimes some people are hesitant. Some people are scared. Some people are fearful. And sometimes they need a little bit of a prodding. They need a little bit of a goading. They need someone to take the first step and they, they'll follow so you see all because you don't see anybody moving at the time doesn't mean that nobody's listening look how many people are coming to christ look what happens here 
Then when Mary was come where Jesus was, she fell down and says, if, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Jesus sees her weeping, sees the crowd all crying, sees the whole funeral procession and everyone's wailing and crying and the tears and everything else. Now, Jesus is not unfeeling. And as we've gone through the Gospels, we've seen multiple accounts of the emotions of Jesus, the character, the behavior, the attributes where Jesus laughs, Jesus cries, Jesus gets angry. We see Jesus feels as he he is God, but we see Jesus in the flesh. We so God has emotions. God empathizes. He sympathizes. And Jesus says, "Where have you laid him?" He's groaning in the spirit and is troubled, meaning his emotions are stirred. They said unto him, "Lord, come and see." And verse thirty-five. One of the most powerful verses of the entire word of God. We see the true nature. We see the true person of God. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. When you're crying, he cries with you. When you're, when you're worried, he's right there with you with his arm wrapped around you. When you're, when you're being oppressed, we see the Lord get stirred up for you. It says, it says God shakes with anger when he sees his children being oppressed. We see the powerful moving of God, the moving of his emotions, the moving of his spirit. His spirit moves upon the waters in the great creation. And we see his spirit is also moved in emotion. Jesus wept. Imagine Almighty God crying because a good friend of his passed away. But he's God. True, but all because he's God doesn't mean he's he, he doesn't have emotions and he's unfeeling. Jesus wept. And by this, by this as well, we see truly how much he cares. Well, he so loved the world. It doesn't say God loved the world. It says he so loved the world. The so love of God is the self-sacrificing love of God. Greater love hath no man than this, and a man who laid down his life for his friends. Acts 20, 28, God purchased the church with his own blood. He so cares. He so feels. He so is with us. Jesus wept. And because of this outward demonstration as well, this wasn't just... Just a demonstration, a play that he put on. This is true tears. And because we see the true emotions and character and, and true feelings of God, then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. As we can see how much he truly loves us by what he says and does. We know he truly cares because he cries. He truly cares about our troubles because he gets angry we know he truly cares because he truly laughs and some of them said could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused even that even this man should not have died we see others doing the same thing worrying and caring and fearing and wondering bringing up hypothetical situations and things 
Verse 38, Jesus, therefore, again groaning himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. So he finally, he, they, they walk out. Oh, this whole crowd, this crowd of people, this multitude of people, all the friends and family and, and acquaintances, all in a crowd moving. You see Jesus and his disciples and Mary and Martha and all the people. And people are crying. Jesus is crying. The disciples are crying. Everyone's crying. And they're all moving to the tomb. Jesus groaning in the spirit. He approaches and it says it was a cave and a stone lay upon it. There's a big stone moved over the entrance of the cave. Jesus says, take ye away the stone. Again, back up. This is the Middle East. This is just outside Jerusalem. And it is really hot. And he's been in the grave for four days. It would be like an oven. A little bit. Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead for four days. You want to uncover the tomb? It's going to smell. Verse 40. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? What did Jesus say earlier? Back up. Verse 4, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. I, the, to the glorification of Jesus Christ is this whole scenario. Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? So what do they do? Okay. Is he trust the Lord no matter what? To us, the situation may smell. The situation may be oppressive. It may be difficult. It may be painful. It, it may be a trial unto us. That it would have taken a lot of work to move this great big stone that was blocking the entrance to this cave. It may take a while to build up the courage to do it, but it's the fact that you do it. Again, time is irrelevant. As we see with the feeding of the thousands, how long would it have taken for his disciples to get all of the thousands sitting in groups of 50? How long would it have taken the disciples to dole out the bread and the fish unto the thousands? A long time. But the duration of time is irrelevant. What is relevant is our obeying the Lord regardless. Jesus waited while they were seating the people. He waited while they were feeding them. He waits. He, he waits upon us as Jesus was teaching his disciples as the Lord speaking to his servants. Even John, while he's, while he's penning this gospel, the disciple John is writing this. The Lord is putting upon his heart and mind what to write. We see the patience of God telling him line by line. And, we, so, and the Lord sits back and waits while they pen it down 
Then the Lord says another bit. They write that down. The Lord says another bit. They write that down. The Lord says another bit. They write that down. You see the patience of God. Don't worry about exhausting the patience of God. Just keep serving. Just keep laboring. Just keep working and don't worry about it. Just labor in patience and faith and belief and worry not about how long it takes. Our limitations do not limit the abilities of Christ. So what do they do? Verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So what is Jesus doing right here? Clarifying something. He is of God. The power of God is with him, in him, through him. That what he says, what he does is of God. He's refreshing this in the minds of all the crowd. But because of the people which stand by me, the multitude, the crowd, I say this. That they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice. Why? 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 Why did Jesus cry with a loud voice? Why did he yell? Because by this time he stinketh. <laughs> Jesus is a bit of a distance from the tomb. Because by this point he stinketh. Just little tidbits. He cries with a loud voice. He wasn't, you know, kneeling in the tomb and just saying it. He was quite a distance back because when they remove the stone that waft of, a, of smell is going to come out and when he had thus spoken he cried with a loud voice Lazarus come forth now what happens next a number of people aren't really aware of what actually happens Now, you remember how I described, it says that Lazarus died, was buried already for four days, and I described about the burial process, how they wrap the body. So Lazarus is literally wrapped up. He can't move. They don't just loosely wrap, they tightly wrap. They wrap real tight around the body, wrapping all the spices and herbs and things around the body, wrapping it all up. It, and so he, he's not, Lazarus isn't like, you know, hopping on his tippy toes. He's not, you know, you know, the, the tippy toe walking kind of thing. He's not hopping out of the tomb. He can't move. But verse 44, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. So what happened? He came floating out of the tomb. Could you imagine standing there with Jesus in the crowd amongst all the people there? 
seeing all of this, they roll away the stone. Jesus call, cries out, declaring himself to be the Son of God, come from God, that God sent him, that he is the one, he's the Christ Messiah. And then he bellows out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes floating out of the tomb. I don't know about you, but I'll bet you a few things happened. For one, jaws would be on the ground. Everyone, their eyes would be bugging out and their jaws would be scraping gravel. People probably fainting, crying, screaming, because a, a, a looks like a mummy is floating out of the tomb. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was bound about with a napkin. He comes floating out of the tomb. And Jesus says, loose him. Meaning he's bound, can't move. So how does a man wrapped up, unable to move, come out of a tomb? Think about that. Jesus says, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary when they had seen these things that Jesus did believed on him. <laughs> That's the whole point. That's the whole point right there. The, okay, Jesus just floated a dead man out of a tomb who had been dead for four days. And now he's alive again, fully healed. Nothing wrong with him. Jesus did this. I'm believing on him. I'm believing on him. He obviously is the son of God. He's obviously the Christ Messiah, like he just declared before he did this. Obviously, this is who Jesus is. And many which said, seeing these things that Jesus did, believed on him. But note, note the words. Many believed on him, not all. Not all. How hard-hearted would you have to be to see all of this, hear all of this, experience all of this firsthand, and not get it, and still not believe? Not all believed on him. Many did. Not all. But some of them some of them went their ways to the Pharisees. Some of them were the rats, were, were the tattletailers, or the spies of the Pharisees. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we for this man doeth many miracles? I love this verse. I love this verse. Verse 47. It's really funny when you really look at it. Okay, so the Pharisees and all of their wisdom and all their their pompous pageantry, that like some overdressed bad guy, they come always come walking in with all of their parade and pomp and everything, and they're all of their their conniving and their attempts to trick Jesus and deceive Jesus and they want to arrest Jesus they want to kill Jesus they try to stone Jesus and Jesus just keeps beating them 
And the next thing we see is are the Pharisees and all of their craziness. These people come running to them and tell them, uh, Jesus just brought a dead man back to life. The, the guy came floating out of the tomb. He'd been dead for four days. And Jesus raised him back to life. The Pharisees gathered a council and they say, what on earth are we going to do? What can we do? This man doeth many miracles. If we if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. If we leave him alone, everyone's going to believe on him. Now, isn't that a devil? Right there. Right there. Isn't that a devil talking? If we stop fighting the church, if we stop fighting God, everyone will believe on him. The only reason people don't believe on the Lord is because of the impression, the temptation, and the persecution of the devils upon them and the temptation of sin. The hardening of their hearts as the, as the God of this world has blinded the minds of them. But if the devils would just leave people alone, they would see the truth and they'd be saved. If we let him thus alone, all will believe on him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and nation. I don't know where they get that. I don't know how they figure that. Jesus isn't teaching insurrection. Jesus isn't teaching anarchy. Jesus isn't teaching rise up against your government. Jesus isn't teaching grab the sword and start fighting the opposition. Jesus didn't say spread the gospel by the sword. Jesus doesn't teach that. He teaches peace and love and joy and turning the other cheek, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy. Jesus teaches, be at peace with all men. So we see lies and deception. Verse 49, and one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that is it expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he, be not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Unknowingly, he prophesied. So you see, even in this, even in the conniving manipulation of the Pharisees, the, 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 the manipulation, the temptation, and the working of the enemy, God's will is still going to be done no matter what they do. The devils could go and burn down every single church building. That's not going to stop the church of God. They've tried. The, the devils have tried. And they still do in some places of the world. They burn down the church buildings. They kill the church. They kill the people. They arrest them and persecute them and they drive them crazy. But guess what? We're still here. The saints will still flourish. Persecution just increases our faith and increases our prayers. You're just making it worse for yourself by persecuting us. <laughs> Good luck. So no matter what the devils do, no matter what the world does, no matter what the Antichrist is going to try to do, he, you can't stop God. You can't stop the word of God. Try to burn all the Bibles you can. You're not going to wipe it out because God says my word is preserved unto all generations. You're not going to be able to invalidate the promises of God. My, the, the kingdoms rise and fall. The, the grass withers, the flowers fade. My word will stand forever. 
Good luck with trying to corrupt the word of God and wiping it out. Good luck with trying to wipe out the saints. Good luck with trying to destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ. You tried to kill him. How'd that work out for you? Guess what? He's still here. He walked out of that tomb. You can't kill God. You can't stop Christ. You can't stop the faith. You can't stop Christ. Doesn't matter what the world does. The kings of the earth gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us cast off their bands asunder from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh at them. The Pharisees gather a council. And they, and they try to figure out a way to stop God. You know... A part of me wishes I could be a fly on the wall in that meeting. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to listen to the attempts of the devils trying to figure out how to how to destroy God. Like, really? Really, Lucifer? You really think you're going to be God? You said within your heart, I shall be like God. I will ascend to the throne. Really? Really, Satan? You, you really think you're going to gather the armies of the earth together in the Valley of Armageddon? And you really think you're going to shoot God out of the sky? Really? That's the best you got? You're going to turn rifles and tanks and rockets on God and try to shoot him out of the clouds? That's the best you got. Prophets of Baal, really? Dancing around your, your sacrifice and screaming unto Baal and cutting yourself, really? Cry louder, cry louder. Maybe your God's asleep. Like, really? You're, this is your reasoning. You really think you can, you can destroy the Christ Messiah. He who can raise people from the dead by speaking you really think you can kill him? You really think you can destroy him? But even in the midst of this, even in the midst of this, that, that we see we see something here, the irony, the irony of the high priests and the Sanhedrins planning how they're going to kill Jesus. And God just literally causes them to just prophesy what God's already going to do anyways. <laughs> Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesies Isaiah 53. Unknowingly, we see the humor of God in this as well. As it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh at them and shall cause them to be in derision. In a way, God causes the devil's attempts to be more like an Abbott and Costello comedy, a Three Stooges comedy. Like, really, that's why God's laughing, because, oh, really, you're going to build a tower and and try to reach the clouds, and you're going to try to be like me. Oh, really, Lucifer, you're going to sit in my throne. Oh, really, Sanhedrin, you're going to kill me. Good luck with that. So you see the humor of this. This is why the Bible says rejoice in tribulations, because to God, your trial is laughable. Think about that one. To God, your trial is laughable. This is why Jesus said to his disciples when they're in the boat in the huge storm and Jesus was sleeping. 
the waves are crashing over the boat and Jesus is sleeping. And the disciples are freaking out. Master, we perish. And Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief. Oh, ye of little faith. Trials are laughable unto God. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Oh, there's a Red Sea in front of you? Here, I'll split it. Oh, the wall of Jericho is in front of you? Here, I'll knock it down like a bunch of Lego. Oh, the, the burning fiery furnace is threatening you? Here, I'll, I'll make it so the fire itself doesn't even touch you. Oh, they're threatening you at the den of lions? Here, I'll just close the mouths of the lions. Why freak out about trials? He who sits in the heavens will laugh. Verse 51. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Verse 52. Any black Hebrew Israelites or any other cultists listening in? Verse 52. And not for that nation only, but that also he should he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, what does that mean? First John chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And he is the atonement for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Consider that. Salvation is also coming to the Gentiles. Verse 53. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Now they've had it. The Pharisees have had it. They've had enough of Jesus. That's it. We're not gonna we're not doing a play around anymore. We're actually going to kill him. We are we hate Jesus so much, we're gonna murder him. Again, let's just pause for a second. Going to murder Jesus. But if we take a look. And what Jesus said to them, Jesus says, you know who I am. I've told you already, you know who I am. And we've explored that before. Seeing how the prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, and all of them, have testified and shown how the Messiah would come. Where he would come, the the uh, uh, for where he would come, the location Bethlehem, his identity uh, Isaiah nine six, his work Isaiah fifty three, and Jesus fulfilled all that, and we see John the Baptist clarifies this, and they knew full well who John the Baptist was, prophesied of the prophet Malachi that would come to be the herald of the Christ, and John heralded in the Christ, and and the Pharisees are right there, and that they were there, the prophets at uh, Jesus eight day when he was eight days old they, they took him to uh, uh joseph and mary took him to the temple for the consecration and the prophets met him and then went all throughout the jerusalem declaring the messiah came they knew full well who jesus was really emphasize this they knew fully well that jesus is the christ messiah God of Israel, come down in the flesh. They knew this. And they took counsel from that day forth to put him to death. They wanted to murder God. They wanted to murder 
God. Yeah, that, that's, that's insane. But who would be moving them to do that? Who hates God so much? He wants to kill God and take his place. Therefore, by this, you can see the Pharisees were demonically oppressed and or possessed to have such absolute pure hatred of God that even earlier we saw how they blasphemed him. They called, they called Mary a whore. They called him the son of a whore. They, they say you're possessed with devils. They say you're a blasphemer. And all, they call all kinds of foul names. And then they want to kill him. Only devils would do that. Only devils would do that. And then later on, we see the first martyr, the disciple Stephen, accuses them. He says, you've taken up the star of your God, Remphan, and the tabernacle of your God, Moloch. They were no longer worshipers of God of Israel. They were no longer worshipers of the God of Moses and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were secretly worshiping and serving the Canaanite gods and were slowly meshing the Canaanite religion with Mosaic Judaism and creating a whole new religion. Verse 53, then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews. They had fully, finally hardened themselves against him and desired only for his death. They weren't listening. What did Jesus say to do? Jesus says, if, if any come unto you and bring not this doctrine... Have nothing to do with them. Mark those which cause divi divisions and offenses contrary to sound doctrine and avoid them. If they will not accept you to leave them, brush off the dust of your feet and leave them. What does he do? Just that. He marked them as heretics. He, he saw what they were all about. He brushed off the dust of his feet at them and left and walked no more amongst them. He tried. He taught them. He showed them. They rejected it. They condemned themselves. They hardened their heart. They blasphemed God. They cursed themselves. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto, uh, unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now they're wondering, why isn't Jesus here anymore? People wonder where God goes. And I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to use the example of California. You see how California, for example, has driven God out of the state. How they hate God en masse. 
that they pass laws and bills and things and they do things of such abomination and filth vileness and let alone i don't know if you've seen it it turns my stomach to think about it that the videos of the marches of the protests where they're literally chanting curses against jesus specifically specifically marching in groups pro, pro group protest down the street marching with drums screaming direct specific curses against jesus directly and they wonder why the state is literally on fire when you oppose god curse god you fight against god what does the bible say the wicked shall be turned to hell and every nation that forgets god you wonder where God's gone? You drove you drove him out. You wonder why bad things are happening because you drove him out. What happens when you drive God out of the government? It's no longer a nation, one nation under God. God is not even in the government. God's not in the schools. He's not in society. He's hardly in the churches. God didn't go anywhere. You drove him out. God lives in the heart of every believer. And the believers are getting really few and far between. The true, true, born again, bought by the blood, sealed by the spirit of the Lord God, Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, through belief alone, are becoming very rare. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews. God is no longer walking in the government. God doesn't walk in Parliament. God doesn't walk in the schools. He hardly walks the streets because the people don't want him. When you harden your heart against the Lord, and when a nation turns against the Lord like this, the Lord will remove his hand of protection and blessing, and he'll and he'll call his saints to come out from among them, be separate, say the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, because I'm about to pour the fire of my wrath upon them like Sodom and Gomorrah. The people wonder, where is God? Why are bad things getting worse? Why, why is the state of society getting so bad? Where is he? You don't think, that does he not care? Of course God cares. But God's not going to work where he's cursed. He's not going to bless what, what's drove him out. God's a gentleman. God's not going to force himself. He's not going to push open the door and come marching in against the will of the people. He's not going to grab you by the scruff of the neck and the seat of the pants and hurl you into the kingdom. God's not going to chain you up and drag you down the path. He's going to wait until you invite him back. He's going to wait until you come to him. The prodigal son runs away. The father didn't run after him. The father waited until he repented and turned and came back and apologized, repented. The Lord is a gentleman. He will grant you your request. And if your request is to seek after darkness, he'll let you go. He wants you to want to follow him. He wants you to want him. To truly want to want him. They sought for Jesus. Couldn't find him. They looked for him. Couldn't find him. They wondered about him. They couldn't figure him out. What, do you think he won't come to the feast? 
Verse 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Think about that one. Think about that one. The rulers, the government now opposes Christ. That if anyone knows where Jesus is being promoted to report it, that they might come and destroy him. The government made a commandment that if anyone knew where Jesus was as being promoted to report it, so they might come and put it down. Does that not sound like today? As the scriptures say, as it was, so it shall be again. As in the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man be. And when the Lord comes, will he even find faith on the earth? How will he find us watching? Will he find us faithful, serving, watching, and waiting upon him? How will he find you? Like the, the great joke that, that I've heard is, uh, I forget who said it. It says, when Jesus comes again and he raptures his saints, there's going to be a lot of Christians walking around heaven with clumps of dirt in their hands because they were trying to hold on to the earth while the Lord was taking them up. Some Christians have bound themselves so much of the world, you hardly see a difference between them and any other worldly. Like I said, God's been kicked out of the government, out of schools, out of society, and you can rarely even find God in the churches. People care more about this world, more about their, their personal liberties and rights and personal fleshly freedoms, their personal entertainments and, and their, go, their personal goals and finances more than they care about the righteousness of God. And that to the point where even saints will turn against saints and that the, so many saints are such helpless slaves to the government that when they see true saints serving the Lord, that they'll even report those, those zealous saints to the government, that the government could come and oppress them. Brothers and sisters turning on brothers and sisters. Did not the Lord say that that's what would happen? Son against father, daughter against mother, friend against friend. Neighbor against enemy, and many shall be offended of me, the Lord says. As churches are teaching, are actually teaching doctrines, the traditions of men. The traditions of men becoming their doctrines. When all the Lord wants is just you to believe and trust in him and abide in his might. To come out and be separate, to be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as he is perfect. To walk in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Care not for the things of the world. Love not the world, neither the ways of the world. Neither the things that are in the world. But to love me only, the Lord says. To care for me and me only, the Lord says. But what can we do? We can see this and acknowledge this and we can examine ourselves by this standard. And to see if it is 
possible that we fall under the same scale that we would repent of this. Turn to the Lord and a personal revival of getting yourself right with God. Getting yourself right with God. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. People go and seek after and go and hang out in Walmart and the grocery store and every other corner store. And they walk through crowds on the sidewalk, but they won't go to church because there's people at church. Is that not just rampant hypocrisy and lukewarm apathy? Fighting and bickering and hating each other and causing fights and stirrings over minuscule things and other things. And I'll just mention it. Hating upon people because they won't, they will or won't wear a mask. Especially in private property. You take off your shoes to go into someone's house because they ask you to take off their shoes. So you 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 take off your shoes to enter their house. But you but but if they ask you to put on a mask to enter their personal property, you put up a fight and, and you fight about this. You fight about not wearing your shoes. Personal respect in this way. We're to, to avoid contentions. The Bible says if you wear one or don't wear one, that's your personal choice. But don't fight and bicker. Bickering and fighting is of the devil. And looking down at people because of their skin color, skin pigmentation. You have more and more. Uh, you have more in line with the devil than you do God. If you discriminate people because of their skin color, just saying all of these things we were told would happen, but it's the fact that we're seeing it in the church. These are things we see of the world because they are children of the world and children of the devil and the children of sin. But why is the why are the saints falling head over the heels in the same manner? Why are we getting caught up in their craziness? Why are we getting caught up in their fightings and bickerings? Why are we why are we hating one another, bickering with one another, fighting with one another? Does it not say that sowing discord amongst the brethren is one of the things that God hates? Why are we turning in our brethren, reporting on our brethren? When the Bible says to not take not take the brother unto the law in that manner. We to go to the Lord. Why are we running to men? Why are we fearing and doubting and stressing and caring and being anxious for everything when the Bible says not to be? Why are we refusing to meditate upon the word of God day and night? But we meditate upon politics and meditate upon entertainment, meditate upon our finances and meditate on everything else, but not the word of God. Our priorities are skewed. If we were to eat and drink, if we were to eat and drink as often as we pray and read our Bibles, how healthy and strong would we be? The reason why we see so many problems in the church, see so many problems in our lives, in our families, in the saints, is because we have a problem with God. The true, honest to God truth is we have a problem with God. We don't truly trust in him and believe in him like we say we do. If we really did, I think we would have a lot less problems in the church. There would be a lot less infightings and schisms. There would be a lot less stress, personal stress, because we'd be at peace with God. We'd have peace of heart and peace of mind. Because we're at peace with Christ and we'd be at peace with one another. Think about these things. Why are these things occurring? Let not these things be in your personal life, in your personal home. If they are in others, that's their problem. But get yourself right with God. 
get your crooked way straight. Wash your hands in the blood of Christ. In the, in, wash your hands in innocency of the blood of the Lamb. Walk in the Spirit so you don't, so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Don't say, well, they, they, them, theirs. Say, me, my, I. How are we individually with the Lord? Revival starts in the heart of the one who's praying for it. If you're praying for revival, but you're not in revival with the Lord, what makes you think God's going to pour revival upon your prayers? Get yourself right with God. Like, like Lazarus, we're all bound up. We can't walk. We can't do anything of ourselves. The Lord brings us to the place of life and freedom and unbinds us, unwraps us. From these strappings of the tomb of death and darkness and sin and hell and temptations and troubles and depressions and stresses. They wrap us up. Societal dictations, societal ideologies, all these craziness around us and fears and distresses wrap us up. The Lord needs to float us out of the tomb because we can't walk because we bound ourselves. How long have we been dead in spirit, dead in faith? Where is our faith? We pray and pray and pray, but do we pray believing? Or do we pray religiously like it's a tradition? We just regurgitate the words because it's what Christians are supposed to do. We read our Bibles because that's what Christians are supposed to do. How do we study the thing? How do we pray? How do we look to the Lord? Look what the Lord has promised to those who would abide in him. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you. Look what the Lord can accomplish with one who is willing to die to self and no longer care what the world says. To stop fighting, stop bickering, stop worrying about all the things the world wants you to worry about. Worry is faithlessness and faithlessness is godlessness. You don't truly believe in God if you don't believe in prayer. Because you're calling God a liar because you don't really believe that he'll keep his promise. It shows by how much you truly believe, by how much you're actually praying. Do you pray like one who believes? Think about these things. Look out around us. Look what's going on. Let us come out of the tombs. Let us come out of the tombs. Let's unwrap ourselves from all these things and to care only about Christ and his word. Let's bring the fire of revival back to prayer and bring fire back upon, call it down upon the altars of our lives in the faces of the deniers. Let's show the world that there's still power in Christ, not just in word only, but to demonstrate it in action to demonstrate it in our lives, to demonstrate it as a reality. It's not a religion. Our God reigns. Our God's alive. There is only one God. He's the same God always was, is, and forever shall be, and his name is Jesus the Christ. And believing on him, you'd have life through his name. When you believe on him, you shall not, sh you shall not die. You'll have everlasting life. He promised this, he says this, he does this, he showed it, he demonstrated it, and he proved it by many infallible proofs. The, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Do we bow at his name? Make sure you do.
And many saw these things about Jesus. They saw his miracles and many believed on him. Make sure you're one of those. Not one of the others on the sidelines, still hardened heart, seeing the miracles, the revivals, hearing the teaching, and still resisting. Still allowing yourself to be consumed and wrapped up by your fears, doubts, and unbelief. Unwrap yourself. Unwrap yourself. And fall at the feet of Jesus and let him clothe you with his peace. And let him cover you with his, with his wings, with his hand. Let him pour upon you the oil of gladness. That because he does not give us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the saints. Follow after charity and the fruits of the Spirit and watch God work. Be still and know that he is God. Look what he can do. Look what he has done. Look what he is doing. And look what he has said he will do. And he will do again. The Lord has promised. The Lord is good and faithful. Who has promised he will do it again. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not to thine own understanding. But in all thy ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. Worry not, doubt not, fear not, stress not, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, make your prayers and requests be made known unto God. John chapter 11. God bless. All right, folks, I hope that's been an encouragement, a help, and a blessing to you. Please take these things to heart and consider these things. What does the Lord say? What does the Lord want of us? What would the Lord want us to do? How would the Lord want us to talk and walk and behave and care? What would the Lord want us to care about and to, and to not care about? To not fear about? Fear hath torment, but perfect love casts out all fear. But where With men it is impossible. With God all things are possible. So don't limit the Lord. Don't limit your prayers. Or pray in faith, believing, knowing that the Lord is able to deliver. So with that, I hope this has been an encouragement and a blessing to you. God bless all those who love our Lord God, Jesus Christ. God bless all those who love his holy word. I hope this has helped. I hope that this will give you something to think about. And this would encourage you and lift you up and challenge you to pray. And challenge you to take the faith seriously. Take these things, pass them on, share this with others. Let others see the, the glorious liberty of Christ, the liberty from fear, liberty from torment, the liberty from the world. Share this good word. Learn this, share this, go demonstrate it yourself. And God bless you. Hope to see you again. And as always, if I don't see you again, I'll see you in the sky. God bless.